G'day and welcome to another episode of Left After Breakfast coming to you from Melbourne, Australia. Broadcast from the studios of 3CR, your only radio left. My name is Susanna Duffy. Well, listener, what can I say? We've got four weeks before the referendum and I'm becoming pretty disturbed about those poll results that we're seeing with the no vote gaining momentum. Oh, dear. I'm telling you, if the answer to that referendum is no, Australia is going to be seen all over the world as a big racist country. And this referendum will be our Brexit. I see that Marcia Langdon has been accused of calling no voters racist or stupid. Well, she didn't. That was me. And I've been pulled up about this by my friends and colleagues and told, no, not every no voter is a racist. I suppose I'm looking at it more carefully. Perhaps not every no voter is a racist. Perhaps they are just, well, ignorant. And I suppose they've fallen into the lies that have been told about this referendum. More and more lies each week. What Marcia Langdon referred to, the lobby groups, Advance and Fair Australia. What Langdon said was... Every time the no case raises one of their arguments, if you start pulling it apart, you get down to base racism. I'm sorry to say it, but that's where it lands. Or just sheer stupidity. Peter Dutton and that chip off the old Dutton block, Susan Lay, have changed her wording. Instead of the lobby groups... Dutton and Lay have used the word voters. So now they're saying that Marcia Langdon called voters racist or stupid. Just another lie from these campaigns. And I've mentioned before about Advance and the Fair Australia lobby groups, who they are, what they are and where they come from. You could say that Dutton changing her words is devious. I just call it foul. More lies. And I'll repeat, if we vote no in this referendum, it will be our Brexit. And think of all those lies that were told during the Brexit campaign. And there's scarcely a day goes by that I don't read about more people moaning and whining about Brexit and how if they'd only known the truth, they would have voted to remain. And I thought those people were pretty stupid to believe all the lies during the Brexit campaign. And now I'm seeing it here, in my own country. More lies and more people falling for those lies. Mind you, I've seen a hell of a lot of racism as well. I'm also getting some text messages from heaven knows what groups they are warning me that I'm going to lose my house. This is like the reaction to Mabo. You're going to lose your home. They're going to come and take your backyard. Oh, dear listener. Poor fella, my country. 
And something else, listener, that is really, really upsetting. I'm starting to worry about old people. I'm looking at them twice. I see them at the bus stop and I begin to wonder, are you going to vote no? And this is because I've come across so many recently that are telling me these stupid things about the referendum and the result of it. They have believed the lies. Well, old people are easy to target, aren't they? Old people are scared. And I know because I'm an old person and yes, I get scared. I'm an easy target, that's for sure. But these lies aren't working on me. And if you know old people, listener, talk to them. Explain, no, it doesn't mean you're going to lose your house, love. Explain to them, no, it doesn't mean that these Indigenous people will tell you what to do and you will have to do it. How racist is that? Explain to them, no, there's no secret agenda and God knows how many more pages hidden about this Explain that Peter Credlin is a liar through and through. Explain to them that no, all the Medicare money won't be spent on Indigenous people. How scary is that one? Explain to them that they have nothing to worry about except finally accepting that Indigenous people exist and they will be recognised in our constitution. 3C I am pleased to see something positive coming out of Queensland. I often worry about Queensland. You know, what's wrong with it? Well, to be truthful, I know what's wrong with Queensland. It's full of too many old people. However, Premier Anastasia Palachek and every member of the caucus are supporting a yes vote even though her state leans towards the no, and she could lose some popularity because of this. Good on you, Anastasia. Very brave of you. Keep it up. It must be dreadful being the Premier over such conservative people and having those awful One Nation mob. Can you imagine yourself, listener, having Pauline Hanson and David Littleproud in your own state? I'm very glad that I live in Victoria. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Who said Australia wasn't racist? Well, I didn't. I have said it is, even though this breaks my heart. When I've been in other countries, I've been proud to say that I'm Australian. I really have, but I'm starting to revise my thinking. I know that this country was founded on racism, and I know that there are racists out there, for heaven's sake, I met enough Nazis and fought them physically in my time. But there are more of them out there than I had originally estimated. This is a young fellow called Jonathan Shree. And he talks about systemic racism in Australia. I sharpened my pencil till the end snapped off and the graphite crumbled in my hands. It didn't take me long to learn to write my own name, but it was years before I could claim to know who it was glued to. See, I knew that I didn't really belong to this place. Not really. 
My mum's distant ancestors came here from England or Scotland or somewhere, and dad, his dark skin spoke louder than a passport, so of course he was always labelled a foreigner. When people asked me where I was from, honest answers like Brisbane or Chermside didn't seem to satisfy, didn't sufficiently explain my differentness. Pauline Hanson popped up, spouting dinky-die old-school racism, and people actually voted for her. Meanwhile, here's ten-year-old me, watching her on TV, born here, raised here, grazed here. It never even occurred to me that my legitimacy as an Australian might be under question, primarily because my skin isn't sufficiently susceptible to sunburn. I sharpened my pencil till the end snapped off, trying to triangulate home, but not quite sure where the satellites were, like a mobile phone with bad reception, not lost, just disconnected. I'd imbibed society's subtle yet firm insistences that different equals wrong and brown equals different. How else do you behave when the people of your birthplace treat you like an outsider? I trimmed back my hairy caterpillar eyebrows, secretly envied the small noses and thin lips of Caucasian classmates, kept sharpening that pencil. Dad was so try busy trying to fit in, he didn't even teach me his language, and now, years later, I can only scavenge small morsels of vocabulary like a crow searching for scattered crumbs. I hate the Australian flag, redundant relic of colonialism. In my mind's uncharted subterranean mazes, it's somehow connected to the impossible decision of whether I shade my face in or leave it white. Terrorist jokes are still the number one reason not to grow a beard. But I grow one out of spite, and also because I'm too lazy to shave. <laughs> I suppose it made me stronger in the end. Nowadays, I don't sharpen my pencil nearly as often. And no one tells me what to write. Thank you. In 2005, after thousands of drunk, white Australians rioted through Cronulla, beating up brown-skinned people and chanting the words, fuck off, lebs, Prime Minister John Howard told journalists, I do not accept that there is underlying racism in this country. I do not believe Australians are racist. No matter how journalists rephrase their questions, Howard continually denied that racism was a key factor in the Cronulla riots. And in many respects, this is exactly what most voters wanted him to do. Australians need to recognise the systemic nature of racism. Systemic racism isn't as overt and blatant as the Cronulla riots or the booing of Adam Goods, but it's there in the over-incarceration of First Nations peoples, in the exploitation of migrant workers, in the persecution of Muslim Australians, in the demonisation of asylum seekers. Unfortunately, most Aussies don't want to talk about it. This reluctance is deeply ingrained in our culture and prevents us from seeing the link between individual bigotry and systemic oppression. It blinds us. It shackles us, it deafens us, it ties our shoelaces together, and we will remain shackled until we recognise that our political, economic and legal systems are not objective or values neutral. They are racialized systems which covertly privilege whiteness while rendering whiteness invisible. Now, to clarify, I'm definitely not suggesting that white people are invisible. Some of my best friends are white. <laughs> but, but what most of them don't see, what many of us don't see, is that racism continues to shape our society in such a way that most white Australians aren't even aware of their own privilege. So what is racism? Let's start by thinking about how individual instances of obvious overt racism are dealt with in public discourse. You know the pattern. A, bigot of, a, a video emerges of some bigot, often drunk, racially abusing a fellow passenger on public transport. 
Suddenly social media goes into overdrive. Everyone's outraged. What an awful person. And we participate in a collective purification ritual of public shaming and self-absolution, seeking to reassure ourselves that that person is a rare aberration. That's what a racist looks like. That's not me. We're not racist people. We're not a racist nation. Too few of us make the link between the actions of that racist individual and the socio-political systems that have shaped and to some extent legitimised that person's behaviour. Many Australians tend to define racism too narrowly. We're taught to think of racism as being a strong dislike or hatred of people from another ethnic group. But the narrowness of that definition masks the important connection to systemic racism. It blinds us to the fact that we really should be looking at the practical results and outcomes of a person's actions instead of asking, did a person intend to be racist? If a government officer from child services removes an Aboriginal boy from their parents, we're never going to be able to know for sure whether that decision was motivated partly by racial prejudice. But when we look at the nationwide statistics and see that even today in Australia, Aboriginal children are eight times more likely to be removed from their parents the non-Indigenous children. It's clear that on some level, our economic, legal and political systems are oppressing Aboriginal families. Instead of asking, did a person intend to be racist, we should ask, were the practical outcomes of their behaviour racially oppressive? Racism is more accurately defined as the oppression of a racial other, backed up by social or institutional power. So who is the racial other in Australia? This is complex. We know race can't be defined according to genetics alone. So race is really about arbitrary, socially constructed distinctions in culture, religion, and collective group identity. As Tanahasi Coates writes, race is the child of racism, not the father. The boundaries between in-group and out-group shift according to the whims of social and economic power holders. The lines are blurry. Sometimes the racial other is indigenous peoples. Sometimes it's Muslims. All this is not to say that people of colour don't sometimes oppress each other or that fair-skinned peoples have never experienced oppression. But in Australia, the complex interplay of relationships between people of different nationalities, cultures and religions operate against a backdrop of normalised whiteness, where outsider is the default status for people who don't present as white. I am presumed to be an outsider until I prove otherwise. So what is normalised whiteness? This is an interesting example. <laughs> News.com released this as an interactive website on Australia Day last year. It's called The Australianator. The idea is to mix and match the body parts of famous Australians to build the ultimate Aussie. Obviously a ridiculous premise, but what I find most striking is that all 36 iconic Australians present as fair-skinned. There's no Adam Goods, Kathy Freeman, Lee Lin Chin, Wally Ali, Ernie Dingo. Now, mainstream cultural products like this continually reinforce the white Australian narrative. With a few notable exceptions, our celebrities and media personalities are white. Our political leaders are white. Even Blinky Bill sounds like a white guy. <laughs> he must have been one of those colonial koalas that came over on the first fleet. <laughs> whiteness is normal. Whiteness is the default. Australia's collective national identity is still based upon an unspoken, underlying distinction between white Australia and the racial other. This is a problem because it increases the chances of Australians dehumanising people of colour, such as migrant workers, indigenous peoples and refugees. Let's be honest with ourselves. Towing boats back to Indonesia isn't about saving lives at sea. It's about keeping out the racial other. 
Australians feel deeply, irrationally, hypocritically threatened by the idea that people of colour might migrate here without first seeking our permission. So we employ the rhetoric of national security to justify our dehumanisation of the racial other. Systemic racism is everywhere. In 2013, researchers in Brizzy found that white bus passengers who said they didn't have enough money for a ticket were significantly more likely to be given a free ride than would-be passengers of Indian or African ancestry. In 2009, researchers at ANU found that job applicants with Middle Eastern or Chinese-sounding na names were significantly less likely to be called in for interviews than job applicants with identical resumes but Anglo-sounding names. But the one that worries me the most is that right now, in Australia, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are 15 times more likely to be imprisoned than non-Indigenous Australians. 15 times. Now remember what I said earlier about results versus intentions. We shouldn't get too caught up wondering whether individual police officers or judges are racist. We look at the results and outcomes of the system as a whole. And no matter which way you try to spin it, a system that locks up black people at far higher rates than white people is a racist system. But systemic racism goes deeper than that. It's not just that Indigenous people are over-incarcerated, it's that we rarely talk about it. It's that political responses are paternalistic tokenism. It's that we don't listen when Aboriginal people themselves offer critiques and solutions to these problems, but we don't call that racism. Because our idea of racism has been redefined and reduced to the bigot on the bus. In 1901, Australia's first Prime Minister, Edmund Barton, told Parliament, there is no racial equality. There is basic inequality. These races are, in comparison to white races, unequal and inferior. Now, I know some of you are thinking, oh, that was 100 years ago. Australia's different now. But the past shapes the present. Our legal and political and economic systems were designed by white supremacists. And that past influences present-day political thinking. In recent years, we've seen our political leaders adopt ambiguous catchphrases like Team Australia and Judeo-Christian values. This is coded language for the same racist sentiments that underpin the White Australia Project, that people who depart noticeably from the White Australian benchmark aren't worthy of belonging to our society. Instead of understanding Reclaim Australia as a fringe, extreme movement, we need to recognise that some, such movements exist along a continuum with mainstream systemic racism. The fundamental premise of Reclaim Australia, that some cultures don't belong here and that only true Australians can decide which is which, is fundamentally racist. So why are our political leaders so reluctant to acknowledge the connection between that overt racism and the underlying systemic racism? It's because in 21st century Australia, discussing the systemic nature of racism remains taboo. We don't mind talking about the bigot on the bus or about racism in other countries, but it goes against Australian culture to talk openly about mainstream Australian racism. This taboo is passed on from one generation to the next and is also internalised by most migrants who come to this country seeking to integrate. Newcomers quickly learn that part of fitting in means not talking about racism. Because when you tell white Australians that they benefit from an inherently racist system, the most common defence is denial. Sociologists have a term for this. They call it white fragility. And white fragility is a real problem. Most white Australians, maybe, maybe most white people around the world, are so unaccustomed to having their perspective on race questioned that even slight challenges to that worldview can be deeply confronting and stressful. 
When a person of color violates this social taboo, they're immediately subjected to harsh public criticism. People of color who talk about racism are accused of playing the race card, digging up the past, or being unnecessarily divisive. Look at our treatment of Adam Goods. Nothing he says is particularly radical, but he makes non-Indigenous Australians nervous because he dares to remind them of their own privilege. One of the most striking aspects of the recent I Stand With Adam campaign was how quickly it refocused public attention on overt, obvious racism and marginalised discussion of systemic racism. Where's the national Twitter campaign for Aboriginal deaths in custody? Of all the cultural myths that undermine free discussion of racism, one of the deepest is that Australia is a meritocratic society, that if you work hard, you'll rise to the top. This bullshit narrative ignores the fact that people of colour face many additional structural barriers that most white Australians aren't any, even aware of. For example, underpaid migrant workers are a crucial component of our economy. They drive our taxis, they harvest our food, and they serve us at the 7-Eleven. But they risk deportation if they stand up for their basic work rights. By denying them citizenship, our system ensures that no matter how hard they work, most of them will never climb the ladder. The meritocracy is a fiction. We retell it so we don't have to feel guilty about the people left at the bottom. This myth of a meritocratic society feeds into the notion of race blindness, also known as colour blindness, the flawed ideology that you can fight racism simply by acting as though race doesn't exist. Now, not only is it deeply naive to assume that people aren't also going to be influenced subconsciously by cultural and media stereotypes, but acting as though race suddenly isn't a thing doesn't undo hundreds of years of oppression and exploitation. It's not going to stop Aboriginal people being incarcerated or Muslim women being spat on in the street. Acknowledging systemic racism will make most of us a little uncomfortable, but it need not leave us feeling guilty or powerless. Being white isn't a crime, and being a person of colour doesn't automatically give you the moral high ground on every issue. The challenge is for all of us to think critically about the systems that shape our lives and to recognise that simply retweeting feel-good anti-racist slogans isn't going to cut it. We need to talk about radical structural reform. Australia's racism isn't just in the past. It's pervasive, systemic and ongoing. The bigot on the bus is just the tip of the iceberg. Reclaim Australia is a symptom of a deeper problem. But pretending that race is irrelevant isn't going to make racism go away. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Well, listener, I seem to be all doom and gloom the last few weeks, but that is because, of course, I'm worried about the referendum. What I'd like you to do, what you should do, is go out there and talk to people. Tell them why you're voting yes for The Voice. Tell them why they should be voting yes for The Voice. Try not to get into any fights about it. It's easy enough to do that, I know. But let your views be heard. Let people hear you. Not just your friends and family and work colleagues, but people you meet on the train station. I always seem to be talking to people on the train station and on the bus stop. 
I get out and about too. I had a couple of conversations in Burke Street Mall last week. And of course my usual haunts. Queen Victoria Market, the supermarket shopping centre and the local health centre. Plenty of people to talk to down there who didn't understand about the lies. It's really up to us, to you and I, to explain these things to people because there's not much going on for the yes vote that I can see. There's that terrible pamphlet that I received from the Australian Electorate Commission. It was awful. It is awful. And very hard to read, much less to comprehend. So... Seriously and sincerely, it's up to us to explain things to our fellow citizens of Australia. Why we need yes to the voice. Why we need a resounding yes to the voice. And Marcia Langton explains what will happen if we say no. I urge Australians who are as yet to make up their minds, don't imagine that there's another opportunity around the corner. Don't think your no vote goes in a different pile marked next time. In this referendum, there are only two options. A yes vote that delivers recognition through a voice and all the hope and healing it represents. By adopting the the Uluru Statement's invitation for us to all walk together in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. Or a no vote which binds us more closely, all of us, to a broken status quo. Another turn of the cycle of poverty and disadvantage and disempowerment. The levels of abuse against the Yes campaigners, including death threats and uh, daily published insults and abuse, uh, takes a toll. And I think our generation of leaders will hand over to younger leaders and they too then will become targets like Adam Goods, like Stan Grant and the cycle will continue. And in this regard, I think the media has a responsibility to lift their game in reporting on these issues and not participate in pylons on persons who are good and decent people. Yes, let's all walk together for a decent future. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the ride. See you next week. Same time, same place. Until then, it's cheerio and ciao from Left After Breakfast. And I leave you with John Farnham.